the contents of the lab report are meant for educational purposes only. They're not meant to be misconstrued as medical diagnosis or treatment advice. Today on The Lab Report, we're going to talk to Sylvia Terra. She wrote a book called The Secret Life of Fat. Ooh, sounds ominous. What is that fat up to? The world of medicine can be challenging. Clinicians and patients are always looking for more options, more effective treatments, and in the end, more answers. Functional and integrative medicine focuses on addressing root causes of disease. Here at Genova Diagnostics, we've watched this field evolve and grow for over 35 years. We've not only adapted, we've led. Join us as we talk about functional medicine, laboratory testing, and optimizing health. Welcome to The Lab Report. Look at you all tan. <laughs> tan or burnt? Because I feel burnt. <laughs> I'm just glad you're back. I mean, I take a shower in the morning. I'm like, is there fire coming out of that? <laughs> Hello. Hi, Michael Chapman. Hi, Patty Devers. How are you doing today? I'm glad you're back. And I'm thinking you probably should have worn some sunscreen. I did. Oh. I did wear sunscreen. Wow. So uh, it's a whole other conversation <laughs> because I, I, we Sorry. did that podcast uh-huh. and I was like, I know what to do here. Yes. And then the sun in South Carolina is like... Not so much. Yeah, it's like, that. Sorry. I don't care about your sunscreen. <laughs> anyway, this is a podcast brought to you by Genova Diagnostics. It's called The Lab Reports, where we talk about things like functional medicine, specialty lab testing, and integrative therapeutics. Tell your friends. <laughs> and you know, Michael, I was watching YouTube this weekend. And you know what, was, an- you know what was annoying me? Everyone says, like, rate, review, hit the notification bell. So I'm not going to say it today. Okay. Well, if you have feedback, you can send it to podcast at gdx.net. And if you like this show, do that stuff. Yeah. That stuff that you're supposed to do. But today is going to be fun because we're having a great conversation with Dr. Sylvia Terra. Yeah. Who wrote that book, The Secret Life of Fat. Yeah. You know, I'm a big fan of when we realize that a certain cell type or Uh a certain tissue type, things like that, have a totally different function. When when you flip the paradigm and you're like, oh, by the way, fat's an endocrine organ. Right, right. You know what I mean? Like, wait a minute, what? Right. I mean, what's next? You're going to tell me, like, the heart secretes hormones? Uh, Michael, it does. Or are you going to tell me that the skin makes vitamins? Or that, like, the brain has these little chemical messengers, they're called (laughs) neurotransmitters? I mean, come on, what are we talking about here? These are all really good, important podcast topics, but for today... Let's focus on fat. And like we talked Dr. Tara, she's a PhD researcher and she does a lot of work around other functions of fat. And to your point, it can be considered an endocrine organ, which is why some of us have a harder time losing weight than others. And I have a lot of questions, mm-hmm. obviously. Right. Uh, maybe not specifically to the heart screening hormones or things like that, but, but certainly around weight loss and what the secret life of fat is. So why don't we just call Dr. Sylvia Tara? So, Michael, Dr. Tara is here. I know. I'm excited. I know. Me too. And for those of you who are unfamiliar, Dr. Sylvia Tara holds a PhD in biochemistry from the University of California at San Diego and an MBA from the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. She is the author of the best-selling book, The Secret Life of Fat, The Science Behind the Body's Least Understood Organ and What It Means for You. Her research results and approach piqued the interest of doctors and scientists worldwide, skyrocketing her book onto bestseller lists and serving as the focus of an episode of Nova on PBS called The Truth About Fat, which aired in April of 2020. Very cool. I know. Dr. Tara has a new online course that guides users deep into the science behind her book and helps them to understand the unique biological response to fat as it relates to weight gain and steps to manage it. And with that, welcome to the show, Dr. Tara. Thank you for being here. 
Great. Thank you. It's great to be here. I'm looking forward to it. So, Dr. Tara, my first question is, as a Ph.D. researcher, what prompted you to choose fat, which most of us have been vilifying for our entire life, <laughs> as your primary focus and write the book, The Secret Life of Fat? Yeah, what a good question, right? Who would, who would dedicate five years of their lives to researching adipose tissue and, and what it means in the body? What a what a weird topic. Anyway, I wrote it because uh, I have always struggled with fat, really since I was a little kid. I gained weight really easily, much more easily than people around me. I always had these skinny friends who'd be eating like Twinkies and you know cupcakes, whatever they wanted to, and they went into their bikinis and went into the pool, no problem. We and I always them. was soft. Right. I was softer than they were. Yeah. And so, and this of course translated and followed me into adulthood. Then as I had kids, I gained, you know, more weight. It was harder to take off all the time. And, and I noticed there were still skinny people around me, people who seemed to be eating whatever they wanted to and, and not really struggling like I was. And, you know, you go on a, a lot of diets and you always hear about the latest dieting philosophy and why you have to eat this or that. And I thought, you know, enough of this, I've been on enough of these kind of siren song diets. And now I'm going to figure out what's going on with my body. I have a particular case that I gain weight really easily and do not take it off. And as I've, I've written the book and talked to lots of people, I've learned there's a lot of people who are like me. I'm not alone. <laughs> That's been one of the benefits of writing this book. Um, but I did do a lot of research. So I'm a biochemist by training. And uh, I researched fat for about five years. I took out almost every article out of the scientific literature, over a thousand publications. And I would actually phone up and talk to the researchers about their research on fat. Mm-hmm. And what I was finding out, it was so surprising. It was such a great aha moment about why fat can be so stubborn. The tricks that fat has to stay on you. It almost has a mind of its own, honestly. It, it can learn, it can do all kinds of things, mm-hmm. and it can it can find ways to remain on you. So the book, um, The Secret Life of Fat, and the course that goes with it, it's all about those learnings. And it's really full of a lot of facts. Um, but I really tried to write it in a way that's accessible to people. So it's it's told through the stories of scientists and patients and people who struggle to, to be a good read, but also very, very informative. Nice. Awesome. Nice. Awesome. Well, we know as doctors and many of the audience members are clinicians, we know that there are different types of fat on our bodies, right? There's like brown fat and white fat. But as Michael pointed out, fear is just disliked and feared and reviled. And I think our question to you is, why do you think that is? And what's the most, most surprising thing you learned in your research around fat? Yeah, I mean, fat is kind of feared and reviled. And what's interesting is it didn't always used to be that way. There was a time in America and even the world where fat was loved and revered. And that was after the Civil War, during times of a bad economic distress, Mm -hmm. when fat was hard to get, right? And it used to be very prestigious to have fat. There were exclusive social clubs for people of a certain weight. You had to be a certain weight to join. Um, Celebrities who were heavier were really celebrated. And it really wasn't until after that period, after we got into the industrial age, when people had more access to food and they exercised less because they were now joining factories and and there was more weight gain. And after this time, you know, leaders in society, so so preachers, politicians, business people started talking about the the gaining girth of the nation Mm -hmm. and the kind of worry associated with sort of sending out warning signals. And that was the beginning of the dieting industry, really. And it started out, you know, in funny ways, like people swallowing tapeworms. There was all these hucksters and people mm-hmm. offering these very questionable diets. 
um, swallowing tapeworms to burn off calories and swallowing poison to kill the tapeworm. There were soaps that were meant to like, wash you and then melt your fat in the process. So it was right. the start of some very questionable <laughs> dieting industry uh, tactics. And you know it, it's now turned into a multi-billion dollar industry, but still some of the solutions, they're not really scientifically driven. And so, I mean, that's how we got to really worrying about fat, because, of course, once an industry is formed around targeting and obliterating an organ, you get all these messages out there about how any fat is bad and you should have no fat and you need to have glistening abs before you can be healthy and you should really, you know, fear your fat. And if you think about it, there's a lot of companies behind that who count on you believing that in order to make money off their business. And the second Mm -hmm. you don't believe fat is a bad thing, you'll stop worrying about it. So... It, it's complicated, and you know we have a lot of messaging out there that tells you to fear um, fat and revile it. And, and certainly, obesity is not a good thing. I'm not promoting that, but our fat is actually very important, and that was some of the the learning I got in the research I did. Yeah, and you kind of alluded to this the whole idea around people trying to lose weight and how much of a, a huge business that is, um, and just in general, you know our 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 typical mindset to try to maintain a certain weight or to look a certain way. And as your story mentioned and hinted that it's, it's harder for some people to, to lose weight than others, it seems. And so what are some of the myths about weight loss and how it relates to that? Yeah, I think one of the myths is that, you know, people who can't lose weight are just, they're just lazy and they're not trying. The other myth is that one kind of diet will work for everybody. So one thing I did is to study fat and what is it exactly? And it turns out fat is not just fat, right? Fat is actually an endocrine organ. And that's that's a really important learning, especially for you know groups of physicians or people that try to help people to weight loss. You have to understand how fat is interacting in your body. It's not just a reserve of calories. It's not inert. It's not just sitting there right, waiting to be burned off. Mm-hmm. It actually produces lots of hormones that your body depends on and can't live without. And therefore, when you try to shrink your fat, your body works in this coordinated effort to try to save your fat because it doesn't want you to lose it, right? So, so, and fat has ways of controlling itself. It's part of that system that tries to protect itself, right? Tries to protect fat. Mm-hmm. And one of those, those hormones is leptin, right. right? And so leptin is released from fat cells, goes and circulates into the bloodstream. And then it can bind to areas of the hypothalamus where it actually controls hunger and satiation. So what's shown is that when people start losing fat, their brain can detect this loss of leptin because you start getting less leptin. And the hunger and and drive to eat goes into massive overdrive. These people are always looking for food, right? And it's because their brain's detecting that lower leptin. So when they do fMRI images of of these people's brains who's, who's lost weight and they show them pictures of food, the excitatory centers in their brain just light up wildly, right? Mm. They get very excited about looking at food. And what's really interesting is those centers of the brain involved in inhibition and self-control, they're weaker in these people. Mm. So it's as if your brain through leptin is controlling, or sorry, your fat through leptin is controlling your brain to try to get it to to get the fat back, go eat, please. And, And in a way, fat is a signal of what's going on in the environment to your body and your brain. So when there's less fat, your brain's seeing it as there's famine coming. There's something wrong in the environment. Quickly hoard, quickly put on calories and fat. And so it's it's a kind of representation, right, of the environment around you. The other thing that leptin can do is it actually changes our metabolism. So our, our muscles, right, usually we burn a normal amount of calories, but as we get lower leptin levels and muscles sense this, 
they start reverting to different proteins that burn less calories when we exercise, right? Or we exert ourselves. Mm. So you burn actually about 22% fewer calories after weight loss than you did before because your muscles have learned to get very efficient. Mm -hmm. So this is really important because right. as you lose weight, on the one hand, you're driven to eat a lot because it's affecting your brain. And on the other hand, you're burning less calories at the same time. So it's an absolute recipe for weight regain as you lose weight. It's something for, for doctors, physicians, weight loss coaches to be very conscious of. People who are going through weight loss are fighting this intense battle that you might not realize. And what's interesting is that that effect that I just talked about, it's like a caloric penalty, right? You lose uh, less calories and you're, you're more hungry. Um, it can last for years. Hmm. It's been hmm. studied for up to six years wow. and it doesn't go away for everybody in that six year time frame. Wow. Right? And so whatever diet someone's choosing, they won't necessarily be able to come off. You have to stay on that right, to, to maintain your weight loss. And it's one reason why there, there's so much recidivism, right? When when people diet, most people don't keep the weight off, mm -hmm. and it's because you know that that hunger really nags at them for a really long time. Mm -hmm. And I find that it, it does go away. Your body does equilibrate to the new normal. It just, it can take years, though a year and a half or a couple years. But you can keep it off. But you need that will, right? It's an ongoing, you know, will. Mm -hmm to keep that off. So anyone who's yo-yo dieted, right? So this is how it comes into, you know, one of the secrets um, of, of fat loss is anyone who's yo-yo dieted probably has this going on. And so you just have to be careful of that. If you have a history of dieting, it's going to be harder for you going forward. Right. Okay. Well, knowing that adipose tissue is an endocrine organ and, you know, in trying to deal with fat, we're fighting against this concept of leptin or adiponectin or all of these other endocrine things that are happening in our body. What are some practical tips for someone to, to really lose weight and work with these systems rather than working against them? Yeah, that's such a great question, right? The million dollar question. Right. So once you know all this, it's like, so what? So I know all this. Yeah. <laughs> what do I do? Yeah, what are some practical tips there? <laughs> yeah, and even before we go into there, the, let me just explain this, all kinds of other ways to gain weight. So, so the other half of the book, right, other than understanding fat, it's all the odd ways we gain weight that you know, it's not just gluttony. A lot of times there are genetics involved with certain people, right? Having certain uh, types of gen uh, genes. And there's also bacteria, right? And you can even, it can be contagious. There's viruses that cause fatness, right? Mm. And, and so you like, yes, it's true. You can actually catch fat. And there are people wow. who struggle with this age. Age is a really big one. So as uh -huh. we age, our fat burning hormones decline. So we get less muscle mass with age, mm -hmm. right? Less bone mm -hmm. mass, muscle mass. So our fat burning tissues we have less of it going forward. And also the fat burning hormones like growth hormone, testosterone, estrogen, we also have less of. Mm -hmm. So this is the recipe for gaining a lot of fat as you get older. Um, and so that's something to consider as well. So so what I do um, in the book and even more so in the course, because the book is, is more of the science, the course is how to implement all of the science. You have to detect your fat blueprint, right? So where are you on the stubborn fat scale? So if you are a 22-year-old male, right, who's gained maybe 15 pounds in COVID, I will be hard-pressed to believe it takes you more than three weeks to get that off, right? All you have to do right. in that case, your testosterone is high, your growth hormones are high, you got plenty of muscle mass, right? You're, you're a guy. Stop eating after six o'clock, cut down <laughs> the of food, exercise, right. and you're going to be fine. Right. Now, if you are a 55-year-old female, right, had a couple kids, have yo-yo dieted in your past, mm -hmm. right, there might be a genetic component, um, you've had fat on for a long time, less hormones now, less estrogen, testosterone, growth hormone, less thyroid hormone. 
um, you're going to struggle for a while. So anyone who's coaching these people, your, your guy, your 20 year old guy, you can expect fast results, right? And, and truly, if they're not getting that, they're probably just not ratcheting up enough. But, but your female, it could take that person, honestly, six months to lose 15 pounds. It can be that stubborn. Mm-hmm. So let, like if they've yo-yo dieted, right, their coordinated system is working against them. They're hungrier, so they're struggling more. They have lower uh, fat burn, right? They need fewer calories than everyone around them. Mm-hmm. So socially, they're getting cues that they're supposed to be eating this amount, but really they have to eat less than even that. They have less estrogen. They have less testosterone, so they're burning a lot less. Um, and then fat, as we grow it, right, it starts to, it becomes um, more vascularized. So there's more veins leading to that fat. So it makes it even easier to get fatter, right, because there's more deposit avenues. So there's a whole combination of things. So look for that woman to take a really long time. They'll have to try harder, be a lot more adherent to the diet, and they'll just lose one of, a couple pounds a week, right, in that case. And that's what's really important to know. So getting back to your original question, when you asked me what are tips that we can do, it depends on where you are on that fat spectrum, right? So that young guy can simply cut out processed food and some carbs, exercise, be fine. That woman now is going to have to ratchet up and use a lot more tricks. Mm -hmm. And what you try to maximize in the stubborn fat uh, case, you have to really take advantage of hormones as much as you can, because that's where we're at a disadvantage. Mm -hmm. And so a couple things that I've, I've, you know, come up with that I think work pretty well. One is intermittent fasting. So really, if you have stubborn fat, this can bust it off. And there's multiple reasons for this. One is, again, taking advantage of hormones. So when we're fasting, we're not releasing insulin for one, right? So your body's getting a break from insulin. It can reset that clock, but you don't have this hormone trying to store everything into your fat when you take a fast. Also, if you fast, um, if you extend the overnight fast, our growth hormone levels peak at night. And so when you eat, right, and you actually mitigate the effect of growth hormone, right, when there's other things in your blood, right? So if you want to maximize the growth hormone potential, don't eat around nighttime, right? Go to bed kind of hungry, wake up, don't eat for a little while. Extending that overnight fast actually, I think, potentiates growth growth, uh, hormone in your body, the effect of growth hormone in your body. The other thing is good adequate sleep produces more leptin, Right. So Mm. now you actually are less um, hungry, less food seeking. Right. If you're overall more satiated with higher leptin levels. And of course, that fast fast is also going to elicit glucagon right from your pancreas. It's going to help you burn some fat, too. So fasting can break through an impasse or a plateau if you're really stuck and it's taking a long time. It might even be a necessity for people. Right. Who are really stuck with stubborn fat. Right. And I'll take a pause there because I've been talking for a while. The other thing I'm going to get on to in a second is going to be the exercise and the effect of, of exercise on hormones as well. Yeah, it's it's super yeah. interesting, uh, all those things. And two things that stood out were essentially the, the fasting component um, and then also the yo-yo dieting part of it too. Um, and it reminds me of this study that I read and it was done on a bunch of participants of a show where they rapidly lost weight, I won't name it. But what they found was that in response to that, the basal metabolic rate of these contestants were way lower in response to that. And actually they were able to alter it by not just fasting, but it seemed that uh, what you're saying, that pin- window of time in the evening, if you yeah. w- if that was your fasting window, that seemed to really change metabolic rate as compared to uh, people who had maybe smaller breakfasts or larger meals or, or had the fast in the morning. That's really interesting. There's a lot of research coming out now showing that fasting at night is somehow better, right, than, than fasting different parts of the day. I have known people 
if they have to eat socially at night, like they have that kind of job where they have to entertain, or a lot of families that want to have dinner together, they'll opt for fasting in the morning. So like no breakfast, maybe very light lunch, you know, uh, and then they'll eat at night. But I think fasting at night is associated with, uh, you know, a lot of things. One is more um, insulin sensitivity. Um, the other one is willpower. It seems to really help with willpower. So even if you eat the same amount of calories earlier in the day and you fast at night, those people tend to lose more weight than people who, like space their meals out the same calorie count over the day, mm -hmm. which I find fascinating. Mm -hmm. And so fasting, it can break through an impasse. I think it helps with a number of things like, like insulin, um, even cholesterol, and then willpower as well is much stronger. They seem to have more control overall in their day. So it's interesting what you said, because I don't think I've seen that research, but it's not surprising me. There's something about our circadian rhythms um, and, and the time of day we eat. And I don't know how much variation there is. I don't know if there's certain people who can eat at night versus day. I get the feeling for people in general, mm -hmm. eating at night seems to be more of the, the culprit than eating during the day. Yeah. 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 And the two things that stood out to me were, was exactly what you're just saying, that circadian rhythm and that need for sleep, right? So we think about regulating your HPA axis. We think about also cortisol as being a glucocorticoid and just adding yeah. weight to us. And the other thing that stood out is when you're talking about other ways people can catch fat or get fat, you know, things like obesogens, because we talk about toxicities and the exposed on our environment and things that can actually act like an obesogen. So these are also things that stood out as you were talking. Yeah. And, you know, I write about that too. Like, I'm like, I really just tried to cover everything because I always suspect I get fat for weird reasons, because right? <laughs> I know I, I eat less than a lot of people. So I look right. for every possible way you get fat and there are ways to do it. It is not just gluttony. Mm -hmm. And there are, um, you know, there's obesogens, there's pesticides, you know, they, they are some of these obesogens. It's in plastic, it's in produce. It's really all over the place. And I think for the most part, you're not going to get obese off that. We're not having it in those large amounts. Like I, I do write about a patient who that's, you know, the doctor had determined microwaving food in plastic and getting a lot of these plastic kind of, you know, byproducts in the system actually led to lower testosterone and weight gain. Mm -hmm. So it can have effect if you, if it's a regular part of your life to be exposed to these things. Um, so there's so much just to be conscious of overall for how we gain weight. Sure. Yeah. yeah. And getting to that that next point that we were going to talk about, and I think it's a good tie-in with the testosterone, is sort of with respect to exercise, there's always kind of the old adage that was like, if you want to burn fat, you need to do aerobic. And if you want to put on muscle, you want to do anaerobic. And it seems like that mindset has shifted a little bit more. And it, I don't know if you have a particular thought on that or whether that sort of high intensity interval training actually might be more beneficial and how it relates to hormones and those sort of things. Yeah, exercise is important. It's almost a double-edged sword though. And so when you start exercising, right, you get you get this hunger reflex, it comes in strong. And so really, you know, you should start exercising slowly as you diet and actually get your eating habits down first. I think what we eat is almost 80% responsible for our weight gain or weight loss, right? The exercise is like that extra kicker, but it's more about what you eat than how much you exercise. That being said, when we talk about hormones and how to use them to your advantage, especially as you age, exercise is actually quite important for a whole number of reasons. Um, so one, one is that, you know, as we exercise, especially hard bouts of exercise, we get, you know, you produce more testosterone, more growth hormone, so that's really good. You're also building up more muscle and more bone, which are also fat burning, so that's very good. In addition, we have different types of fat in our body. So we have white fat, right? That's the subcutaneous fat, the kind of fat you wanna lose when you talk about losing weight. 
There's also brown fat, and that's fat that actually burns calories to produce heat, and that fat's around your neck and your heart area. But then there's beige fat as well, and beige fat can turn brown when we exercise. And so the more we exercise, the, the higher level of brown fat or, or calorie-burning fat we actually have. So that's another benefit to exercise. And so and, and there's also another hormone we didn't talk about yet that comes from fat, which is adiponectin. Mm. So adiponectin is interesting in that um, it actually tells fat in your bloodstream where to go. So, you know, visceral fat is that kind of really bad fat that can get inflamed and it can, uh, you know, lead to diabetes and heart disease. People who exercise a lot can have higher levels of adiponectin and adiponectin directs blood, uh, fat in your bloodstream to go to the safer deposits of fat tissue, like your arms and legs and buttock area, the subcutaneous deposits, not the visceral deposit. And interestingly, when we exercise, we also get more adiponectin. It provokes adiponectin from our fat cells. And so exercise is important for so many you know, different reasons, for, for testosterone, growth hormone, building up um, more fat-burning tissues like bone and muscle, and, and building up more beige, uh, sorry, brown fat from beige fat, and for adiponectin that will then put your fat into the right places. And um, I tell an interesting story about sumo wrestlers in the book, um, because they are clearly obese but they exercise six hours a day. And so when they actually do CT scans of, of their belly area, they don't have a lot of visceral fat and they're actually fat, but fit. Mm-hmm. And because six hours of exercise, they have higher levels of adiponectin. And so they can they can put their fat in the safer deposits. And interestingly, when they, they retire and they stop exercising, they get metabolically unhealthy really fast, mm-hmm. right? So, so the exercise actually right. keeps them healthy. So you can't even be fit, but fat, right? You can have an extra 15 pounds and it, it probably won't hurt you if it's in the right places. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's something the dieting industry would never want you to hear. But that's, right. that's true. That's Apparently true. 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 Right. <laughs> is there one particular kind of exercise that gets you from beige to that brown thermogenic fat? Like, is it aerobic or anaerobic or any? I think it's any, actually. And, and cold exposure can do it, too. Mm-hmm. So I know when I, I did this research, and of course, I talked about it, you know, in my family. My husband started swimming in our very freezing cold pool that we don't ever heat. And he's a thin guy anyway. He doesn't really have a weight issue, but he got emaciated. I mean, he got really skinny from doing this and he would eat like a horse. Like, so he was eating a ton and losing weight. Mm -hmm. And I I don't know how much fat, brown fat he has in his body, but clearly enough. (laughs) No, we've seen some of that research too, around like cold plunges and ice and even some of the stuff that's coming out around like menthol or icy hot things that you can apply to your skin to increase that thermogenesis to make beige to brown. So that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I know. Have you come across a certain type of exercise that's supposed to help? I was on the impression was exercise in general and I didn't hear about the specific type. Yeah, no, I haven't. Have you, Michael? Uh, I, honestly, I haven't put a lot of work into looking into that, but I, I feel like for the most, like some of the high intensity interval stuff is really interesting because it seems to really promote, you know, overall, uh, growth of muscle tissue, you know, which I tend to think in and of itself is a caloric sink as well, all by itself, you know, because of just the metabolic rate of it. Um, and so I I don't know, I think that, and also the fact that we're producing more testosterone growth hormone, as you alluded to, I think I I would maybe like muscles, like twitch muscle, like muscle centric in essence. Yeah. 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 Um, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. No, HIT is really good. HIT is very good for plateauing as well, right? So yes. like like HIT three times a week actually is also associated with lower visceral fat. It can decrease visceral fat, actually. 
And I know when I'm really plateauing, it's something I use. You know, I, mm -hmm. I wait till the end. So I'm, I, I do it on, on empty. So um, later in the day, right, when I'm yes. in that fasting state and I do a hit, it, it will start moving again. If you can stand it, it's actually very, very good. I've right. done that too. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I'm with you. Um, you know, another interesting thing I, is just, you know, in this time of the pandemic, and I know we're coming out of it, but, um, you know, so many of us have, as you alluded to earlier, like we've, we've had, we've struggled <laughs> and, um, you know, especially people who already had predisposition to obesity, I think, you know, maybe even more profoundly affected by the sedentariness wow. of, of what happened over the last year. So in patients who are looking to protect their health and especially their immune system and those things being intertwined, what are some strategies there for, for those types of individuals and in dealing with this? Yeah, there's an emotional component to eating as well, right? And so I, I have a chapter on this as well, which is called Mind Over Fat. So as we start to lose weight, it's, it's actually stressful. We're going through this life-changing bit, and it, it's a constant control you have to exert to eat a certain way, exercise on time, right? Deal with the kind of emptiness that you feel from you know decreasing leptin. And usually during times of pressure, people can't take more stress, right? They, mm -hmm. they want to let loose. So when you have a depression or a recession or people go through a divorce, right, um, they tend to eat more. In fact, candy sales go up during recessions and depressions. People just, wow. they can't take it, right? Yeah. They just need an out. They want to drink more. And alcohol consumption went up during COVID as well, mm -hmm. right? And so so part of it is, is emotional. How much can we take at one time? And so as we start coming out of COVID and life gets back to normal, I think people are going to be ready, you know, have more appetite, so to speak, right, to actually eat less, mm -hmm. take more on, right. right, and be more regimented. And so, you know, you have to think about exertion and willpower. It's like a muscle, right? And the more you use it, it does get stronger the more you use it, but it also gets fatigued. And there's lots of research that shows that, that people who are constantly exerting themselves without ever taking a proper break or, you know, a, a separation from that, they wear out, they can't go on. And so it's almost better to take breaks along the way when you diet. So, you know, you can try a cheat day, but that's a little bit dangerous. Some people really go down a slippery slope when they have a cheat day and yeah. they can't get off and right. you just cheat one day after another. But, right. but try other things. I mean, try a vacation day if you can. Try shopping for something, you know, just try splurging. Um, figure out what it is that really gives you a lot of joy. Maybe it's, a, you know, music or, or whatever it may be and do those things, reward yourself in some way. Um, people who don't actually, they have a, a worse long-term effect than people who do take in the right um, positive cues back, you know, from themselves. So you have to, if there's a whole psychology around losing right. weight, right. life change, right. you have to be forgiving, right, is one thing. Everyone goes off their diet sometime. And, uh, you know, I write about this. There's something called dichotomous thinking where, where people who do go off, like they punish themselves, like they're, they're a failure now. And uh, the weight loss coaches I, I interviewed, that you know, the, the medical weight loss coaches from Tufts and Joslyn, part of their big value added to these patients is they help them get right back on. They'll give them forgiveness. It's almost forgiveness from their doctor, an authority figure. It's okay that you went off. Don't lose all the progress you made. Let's get back on. Come in next week. Let's weigh you again. They get them back on. And the more you can do that for yourself, right? Just be self-loving, self-forgiveness. It's okay. Get back on and keep going you're going to last for the longer haul, right? Because it is a very long road um, to lose weight. And, and the more you can just kind of love yourself, forgive yourself, stay on the program, even if you come off here and there, 
you're, you're going to do a lot better than not. So it's important. It's kind of my newer, my area of, of interest now is figuring out like mind over fat, like, like what on earth? Cause we all know what to do. Who doesn't know you exactly. have to eat less and exercise? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But we don't all do it for various reasons. And so, so why do some people do it and succeed long-term and some people don't? It's an interesting question. No, I, I love that. And, and particularly, you know, it makes me think about the aspects of, you know, the, like you said, the emotional aspect to, to consumption and it, you know, I think of it being like almost like a dopamine hit. And so it's like if if you have other things in your life that will provide a similar sort of neurotransmitter response, um, then we need to focus on, on converting this type of response to that healthier type. And then it begs the question, I think, for a lot of patients, maybe they don't even know that they have something that can tr- can trigger an equivalent emotional or neurological response. So what can we introduce into their lives? What are they interested in that will give that to them and, and establish that before we even do the undertaking of weight loss? Yeah, yeah, and it gets down to something called temptation bundling, right? This can be helpful. So whatever it is that, that turns you on, right? Do it when you're going through something difficult. So like there's this one study where they have people go to the gym and they have half of them where they just say, you have to go to the gym this many times. They have another half that they, they have like this, this juicy audio novel, but they can only listen to it at the gym. Mm-hmm. And they find people who pair a uh, you know tr- a, a, an activity that's unpleasant with one that's really pleasant, they go more. And in fact, even when they take away this audio novel, they still go more because now it's become habit. Mm -hmm. So most of what you want to do is you you want to turn this into habits. You're not thinking about it. You just do. You feel this urge to do it. Your body gets into a rhythm. It gets into an expectation and it'll just start wanting to do these things. Mm -hmm. Right. So in a a way, like fat loss, it gets fat loss because the more you do it, you start losing weight. And then it's not it's just a habit and you keep doing it because it feels good to do it. Mm -hmm. Right. And so it, it just keeps going. So, um, you know, that's one thing I think, I think that can be, you have to find out what works for you though. And I think the more you try to do these hard things, like you'll figure it out and you shouldn't even be embarrassed about what it is. Like for me, I'll, I'll confess here. When I, <laughs> when I work out, I listen to like the most hard rock juvenile delinquent music I can find. And like for me, that's just fun to do you know, on the treadmill for a long time. Right. So right. It's like find that thing, and it's not something I like like to brag about ever because it's a little bit embarrassing. But I run <laughs> out, and it, and it works. And so find that thing that gives you that release, right? That neurotransmitter release you're looking for. That that's not chocolate. Right. So great. <laughs> I love that temptation bundling. That's so right. fascinating. What a great trick because it's essentially for the. I mean, there are 10, 20 percent of people I'm making up a number that really enjoy exercising. But let's face it, let's normalize this to a certain extent. There's a good 80 percent of people out there that do not (laughs) enjoy it. So if we can trick them with that reward to where once you even take it away, they're still wanting to do it. What what a great little transition to make there. (laughs) And then after a while, it's habit. So like even without music, I'll I'll feel like I need to work out and I'll go do it. So it it works. It's like it's like raising kids, You're raising yourself to just. Well, I will say, um, you know, anyone who's struggling with this, please go out and get Dr. Tara's book called The Secret Life of Fat. But in addition to your book, you also have this online program that we've been talking about a bit here. For those of us who want to dig a bit deeper into the topic, where can people go to register for this and, and what can they expect there? Yeah, so if you go to my website, um, www.thesecretlifeoffat.com, 
you can get um, the the course there. You can download it there. Amazon has the book. Um, it's in some bookstores too. I think some Barnes and Nobles as well at this point. And so the, 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 I think if you have them both together, it's best because the book will go into a lot of the depth. And I wrote the book purposely in a very entertaining way. So it wasn't too sciencey or too textbooky. I wanted it to be an easy read. And so it's told, um, you know, the secret of fat through stories of scientists who discovered all of these interesting things mm-hmm. and patients who've experienced um, of this hardship and then doctors who've had to treat what, what they what everybody has gone through. So I think it's, it's a, it should be a light and easy read, even though it's chock full of science. Mm-hmm. The course is more of a how do you implement this now? So it has some of the book summary in it, but it, it's got more at the end of each chapter of what do you do with this? Right. Mm-hmm. How do you now really implement it? So it's great to be super educated on fat and know all the different ways we can gain weight. Um, But then you also have to know, well, what can I what can I do about this and stringing things together? And it's also trying to help people figure out where they are on the fat stubbornness scale. So, you know, depending on what your family history is like, your your past dieting, what you observe about yourself. Right. Depending on all of that, um, you might have an easier, hard time losing weight. And what I'm really trying to get at is people who are struggling, you know, there are all these reasons why you're probably up here on the fat stubbornness scale. Now, here are the extra levers you're going to need to implement in order to fight it. And it won't be easy, right? I never, I'm not one of these coaches or people who say like fat loss is easy. You can lose 20 pounds in 20 days. That's not going to happen if you're on the fat stubbornness right. scale, if you're high on that. Right. But you have to know there's people like you. And everyone is doing the struggle together. And we just have to be a lot more strict and adherent to a diet, right, that works for you. And on top of all of this, fat, fat, like people react differently to food. Some people can eat a cookie, some can't, right? And so like your individual weight loss goal is separate. And that's what the the, the course is trying to teach more more than not. Perfect. And we're going to link to the book and to the online course in our show notes, just to encourage the audience to go there. And Dr. Tara, we can't thank you enough for spending time with us. I'm sure the audience is loving this. But before we let you go, we do have one last question that's a little off topic that I'm going to kick to Michael. Oh, right. I had almost forgot. So we do this ridiculous, silly question at the end of interviews. It's called the fireball and it has nothing to do with anything. Um, And so my question for you is actually, we've been talking about animals a lot recently. Do you happen to have a favorite wild animal? Favorite wild animal. I love peacocks just because of their sheer beauty, right? They're so beautiful. Yeah. I don't know who designed that, but it's gorgeous. That yeah. is a good one. We haven't had that one. <laughs> and they are beautiful. Yeah. They do squawk a lot, though, don't they? <laughs> They're kind of noisy. <laughs> They're a little nasty, but boy, I mean, when they spread those tail feathers, what a work of art. Oh, Absolutely. so true. Absolutely. So true. <laughs> well, Dr. Tara, thank you so much for spending time. This has been phenomenal. And again, we're going to encourage everyone to check out the show notes because we'll have links to your book and course. Yeah, thank you. Yep. Thank you. I like how you pointed out what? the negative attributes of the peacock. They're loud. <laughs> they have you ever really, heard them yes. squawk? I have. I lived near the zoo in Seattle. I had an Whoa. apartment. I could hear those what freaking peacocks <laughs> every night from my apartment. I mean, picture this, right? I'm sitting there watching the uh-huh. sunset over the mountains, over okay. Puget Sound. Everything's Aww, nice, yeah. and then all of a sudden, ouch. Yeah, I mean that was the ambiance. That this is and multiples, not That's just one. Terrible. They are pretty though. Next time on the lab report, Doctor Jeffrey Bland. Get out of here. No, it's true. We're gonna talk to Doctor Bland. The Doctor Bland. The Godfather of functional medicine. You've been listening to the lab report. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our podcast, rate us, and leave us a review. 
To learn more about Genova Diagnostics, visit our website at gdx.net. There you'll find information on specific testing, educational resources, and how to connect with our show. Call us at 1-800-522-4762 or email us at podcast at gdx.net. So what is a collection of peacocks called? Is it like a gaggle? They're called a muster. No, it's not. Seriously. Did you just make that up? I didn't, but somebody is making these up because did you know that a group of apes is called a shrewdness? No, it's not. It is. The- a, gr- <laughs> a, a group of bats is called a cauldron. Oh, all right. That's just ridiculous. No, uh, there's a bunch of these that make absolutely no sense. I mean, there's an army of caterpillars, which makes more sense. That actually does make sense. (sighs) But um, there's like a coalition of cheetahs. Oh, come on. A group of crows is called a murder. Did you know that? Like these are verbs like muster and murder. Like this is making no sense. A convocation of eagles. Give me a break. And a group of ferrets is called a business. What? What What are they up to? 